Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Today's show, I'm going to highlight the adventures and inspirational works of someone whom an American newspaper in 1899 called the most learned woman in the world for her dexterity in writing, research and public speaking. Unfortunately, most of us have probably never heard of her. Her name was Amelia Blanford Edwards. In England today, she's called the godmother of Egyptology for her dedication to the Egypt Exploration Society, which she founded. Amelia Blanford Edwards is the British writer and explorer who promoted the protection and preservation of ancient Egyptian sites. Amelia Edwards was born 7th of June 1831 in London. Her father had been a Peninsula Army officer. Her mother, Alicia, was clever and accomplished in her own right and was the daughter of Mr Robert Walpole, an Irish barrister. Amelia was educated at home and showed promise as a writer at a very young age. From the time she could hold a pencil, she was always drawing illustrations of books and passing events. Her first published poem appeared at age seven, called The Knights of Old. Her first published story, at age 12, called The Story of a Clock, which was reprinted in New England magazine in January 1893. Amelia also enjoyed amateur dramatics and would remain fond of theatre, for the rest of her life. Amelia's talents were recognised very early by her family and she was encouraged as a child to be expressive and daring. In fact, for the first 40 years of her life she did seek adventure, even dressing like a man and going to establishments off limits to ladies of her class in order to learn more of life and to find models for her drawings. Her career interests included music, at which she excelled, and also art, which she eventually put to use as an illustrator for her books. As the only child of old parents with modest means, Amelia took up the responsibility of wage earner, and during the 1850s to 1870s, journalism became her profession, working on the staff of two magazines, the Saturday Review and the Morning Post, and contributing articles to even more. She reported on current events of every sort, except the Houses of Parliament and police reports. During the 1850s, 
she produced histories of England. Amelia also published poetry, stories and articles in a number of other magazines, including Chambers Journal, Dickens Household Words and All Year Round. Her first full-length novel was My Brother's Wife in 1855. Her early novels were well received, but it was Barbara's History in 1864, a novel of bigamy, that solidly established her reputation as a novelist. A review in The Globe says, If Miss Edwards goes on writing such stories as Barbara's History, she will, on some bright day of a lucky season, wake up and find herself famous. Miss Edwards has qualities superior to mere literary facility. She has humour, insight into character and extensive knowledge of books. We give her full credit for having written a thoroughly readable and deeply interesting novel. She spent a lot of time and effort on her book's settings and backgrounds, estimating that it took her about two years to complete the research and writing of each one. One might be set in America, another in England and a third in France. This painstaking work paid off. Her last novel, Lord Brackenbury, in 1880, was a runaway success, which went into 15 editions. And yet it is not her novels that are reprinted nowadays, but her traveller's tales. At age 30, following the death of her parents, Amelia had little reason to stay in England, nor was there anyone close to her who would criticise her if she chose to travel. The proceedings of her writings were sufficient to enable her to live independently and go where she wished. So, Amelia embarked on a series of intrepid expeditions, of which she wrote. For our word of the week this week, I give you Pharaoh which originally meant great house and was a term for the palace of the king before it came to represent the king himself. Amelia's accounts of her travels show her knowledge of her surroundings, her interest and openness towards the people and customs of other countries, and not least for the humour and enthusiasm which enlivened many of her experiences. And at a time when male chaperonage was considered socially, if not physically, essential for a woman traveller, she chose to travel and live with a wealthier single woman she'd met in Italy called Ellen Drew Brasher. Male servants or guides were hired as needed, but in no way controlled the journeys. Their first trip was chronicled as Sights and Stories, a holiday tour through northern Belgium in 1862, a challenging journey through the Dolomites, a mountainous area almost unknown to tourists at the time. It recounted in Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys in 1873. In the introduction, Edwards warns her readers, The passages are too long and too fatiguing for ladies on foot, and should not be attempted by any who cannot endure eight and sometimes ten hours of mule riding. 
Together, the two women braved flies, mud, cold, heat, poor roads or no roads at all, resistance or hostile male servants and villagers, and other difficulties and privations. They thoroughly enjoyed themselves. It's obvious that part of the attraction of travelling for Edwards was the challenge of reaching areas that were almost entirely untouched and inaccessible, of meeting and overcoming difficulties that others would not face. She sounds delighted when she states, We journeyed sometimes for days, altogether without meeting a single traveller, either in the inns or on the roads, and encountered only three parties of English during the whole time. It was her third documented journey, however, that really changed the direction of Melia's life. In 1870, she travelled to Egypt and sailed up the Nile to Abu Simbel. There she spent six weeks excavating at the Temple of Ramesses II. Her animated and engaging account of the trip was published as A Thousand Miles Up the Nile in 1877. Of setting off the first day in their boat, the fillet, she writes... Happy are the Nile travellers who start thus with a fair breeze on a brilliant afternoon. The good boat cleaves her way swiftly and steadily. Waterside palaces and gardens glide by and are left behind. The domes and minarets of Cairo drop quickly out of sight. The mosque of the citadel and the ruined fort that looks down upon it from the mountain ridge above diminished in the distance. The pyramids stand up sharp and clear. By the end of her first trip to Egypt, Emilia was entirely smitten with Egyptology. It would become the major work of the rest of her life. All the same, the initial realisation that intriguing artefacts were quarried from the graves of the dead was a shock. In her book, she writes about how the thoughts of herself and others changed during that trip. Shocked at first, they denounce with horror the whole system of sepulchre excavation, legal as well as predatory, acquiring, however, a taste for scarabs and funerary statuettes. They soon begin to buy with eagerness the spoils of the dead. Finally, they forget all their former scruples and ask no better fortune than to discover and confiscate a tomb for themselves. Trade in antiquities was largely illegal and lucrative. There were tension and colonial rivalry between French and English explorers, the political climate was unstable. Once found, a site would almost certainly be pillaged and destroyed by the knowledgeable, the greedy and the random passerby. Edwards writes with regret. The wall paintings, which we had the happiness of admiring in all their beauty and freshness, are already much injured. Such is the fate of every Egyptian monument, great or small. The tourist carves it all over with names and dates, and in some instances with caricatures. The student 
of Egyptology by taking wet paper, squeezes, sponges away every vestige of the original colour. The collector buys and carries off everything of value that he can, and the Arab steals for him. The work of destruction, meanwhile, goes on apace. There is no one to prevent it. There is no one to discourage it. Every day, more inscriptions are mutilated, more paintings and sculptures are defaced. When science leads the way, is it wonderful that ignorance should follow? This week's book of the week is The Case of the Missing Marquis by Nancy Springer, and it's the first in the Enola Holmes series. Enola Holmes is the much, much younger sister of Sherlock Holmes, and she lives with her mother, but then her mother disappears on her birthday, and she endeavours to try and find her, so that she can escape her eldest brother Mycroft's idea that she should go to a finishing school, which she hates. Along the way, she meets the young Marquis of Basilweather. They have several intriguing mysteries that they have to solve. Some of them are quite literally life or death. Now, there's a film adaptation of this book just being released on Netflix, but, like I always say, it's well worth reading the book before you see the film. I personally like this because the main character isn't Sherlock or Mycroft, but the sister, who is a very strong-willed and intriguing young lady. Amelia believed that science could offer the hope of recording and preserving something of the beauty and history Egypt had to offer, rather than losing it completely. She felt that scientific investigations might lead to understanding not just the accumulation of treasure. When she returned to England, Amelia was determined to promote the cause of Egyptian archaeology. The field of Egyptology was just beginning to emerge. Many of those involved were gentlemen explorers, whose technical expertise and knowledge varied widely. In such a climate, a rare gentlewoman might also become involved. Well... Amelia consulted with leading experts, educated herself about the field, and formed lasting friendships with young, gifted men such as Maspero and Flinders Petre. The interest in Egypt was not confined to travel writing. Edward studied hieroglyphics and corresponded with the leading specialists of the day. With her expertise in journalism, Amelia was well placed to arouse public interest in supporting excavation work. With Reginald Poole, a fellow enthusiast, she began planning and promoting the founding of an Egyptological society. It met for the first time in June 1880 at the British Museum, and in 1882 it became formally known as the Egypt Exploration Fund, with Amelia Edwards and Reginald Poole as its joint honorary secretaries. While Poole took over the internal administration, Amelia attended to the publicity and subscription work. Through the unceasing dedication of both Poole and Amelia, the Society was soon able to finance the exploration work of Flinders Petrie, 
There is no question that the sound financial status of the Egypt Exploration Fund was largely a result of her extensive campaigning. Amelia wrote letters soliciting possible supporters and campaigned for the society by undertaking strenuous lecture tours through England and the United States. A series of such lectures were rewritten and published in a book form as Pharaohs, Fellows and Explorers in 1891. This was to be her final publication, but it's said that her sparkling personality shines through on every page. She was later awarded honorary doctoral degrees from Columbia College, New York and Smith College, Massachusetts in recognition of her contribution to scholarship. In Chapter 8 of Amelia's book Pharaohs, Fellows and Explorers, she chooses to describe in detail a queen of Egypt, Hatasu, disagreeing with other Egyptologists about her importance in history. Amelia's love and knowledge of Egyptology are ably demonstrated in this particular collection. It also gives some idea of her ability to communicate clearly and interestingly to an audience. Edwards also translated a number of works into English, including Maspero's Egyptian Archaeology. She completely gave up her successful career as a novelist, writing only on Egyptological matters after 1880. And now here's a quick advert from another podcast that tries to promote women in history. Hey everyone, I'm Kelly. And I'm Emily, and we're from Whining About History. Ever notice how women seem to be missed, forgotten, or maybe even purposely left out of history books? We did, so we decided to take the his out of history and make it herstory. Each episode, we discuss the lives and general awesomeness of these historical wonder women, all while having a glass of wine. Or maybe a bottle. Come join us on all of your favorite podcast platforms at WAHpod on Instagram, WAH underscore pod on Twitter, and at Whining About History. Remember, that's no H or E in whining. See you you soon. soon. Cheers! As time went on and the subject became more popular, the field of archaeology became dominated by professional males and Amelia's influence in the policies and direction of the Egypt Exploration Fund decreased. More and more, De facto decisions were made by a subcommittee at the British Museum in which she was not included, rather than the executive committee of which she was part of. Her marginalisation was possible partly because so much of her time was spent away from London campaigning on behalf of the society. Flinders Petrie, who unsuccessfully complained about the change to Paul, was to state flatly in his memoirs, Paul and Newton cut out the founder... Miss Edwards. Although saddened, Amelia continued to dedicate herself to the Egypt Exploration Fund. Her happiest and most productive period, however, was over. In of an arm during the winter of 1889-90 on her 120-stop lecture tour of the United States. She had been formally invited to undertake the tour by 200 leading Americans. Her enthusiasm did not decrease but alas, her energy did. 
1891, she underwent an operation for a malignant tumour in her breast, and possibly the cancer weakened her resistance to disease. And then, in January 1892, she suffered a personal loss. The death of Ellen Drew Brasher, the woman who had travelled with her and shared her home, the Larches, in Westbury-on-Trim, for nearly 30 years. Amelia died on April 15, 1892, at the Royal Terrace in Western Supermare. Not many people actually knew she was there, as she was trying to keep her stay quiet. She was suffering from exhaustion and had been under treatment by a doctor, but then developed influenza, and due to her weakened system, passed away. She left an extensive library of Egyptology and a collection of Egyptian antiquities to University College in London. With it went a bequest of £2,500 to establish the first chair in Egyptology, the Edwards Chair. Her will stipulated not only that the professorship must go to someone under the age of 40, but that no one at the British Museum must be considered for it. In this way, she assured that her candidate, Petrie, would be the first Edwards Professor of Egyptology. He, of course, went on to become the greatest name in the history of archaeology, a credit to his patron's foresight and support. The rest of her library? Well, that was given to Somerville College, an early women's college at Oxford. News just in. After researching extensively for two years, Boffins has discovered red sky at night, shepherd's delight, blue sky at night, day. <music> Amelia was buried in the churchyard of St Mary the Virgin, Henbury, in Bristol, England and her grave is marked by an obelisk and a stone ankh which is lying on the floor. These were organised by her devoted follower and friend, Kate Bradbury, as well as Petrie. Alongside are the graves of her life partner of 30 years, Ellen Drew Brasher, as well as Ellen's daughter, Sarah Harriet Brasher. In September 2016, Historic England designated the grave Grade 2 Listed, as a landmark in English LGBT history. During her lifetime, it's interesting to know that Amelia always pushed the envelope in equality for females, not just in her field of expertise. So, it's not surprising to know that she was Vice President of the Bristol and West of England National Society for Women's Suffrage. you enjoyed that tale of Amelia Blandford Edwards and found her as interesting as I did. Her story was brought to life by Bradley Stoke Radio's very own Catherine Ayres, as well as Tony Allen. time for some back in the day facts. On the 3rd of October in 1896, 
English craftsman, poet and socialist William Morris died. On the 4th of October 2000, the last Mini Morris car rolled off the production line in the UK. On the 6th of October in 1927, the premiere of the film The Jazz Singer, starring Al Johnson, was held. It was the first full-length film with sound, although only in the songs, and some spoken dialogue. On the 7th of October in 1769, Captain James Cook reached New Zealand and landed a few days later on the North Island. Also on the 7th in 1913, Henry Ford introduced the first moving assembly production line at his Michigan plant. And on the 9th of October in 1701, Yale University was founded in New Haven, Connecticut. And lastly, on the 10th of October in 1886, the dinner jacket made its US debut worn by tobacco tycoon Griswold Lorillard at the Tuxedo Country Club, hence the use of the term tuxedo in the USA. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>